This is Space Cats Peace Turtles, the unofficial podcast for Fantasy Flight's Twilight Imperium. Episode 6, The Pre-Release Tier List. Music by Ben Prunty. Featuring Matt Martins and Hunter Donaldson. Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode Ooh. of Twilight Imperium's podcast. No, Ted. Welcome. Hey. Hey, and welcome to... <laughs> <laughs> it's, you, we haven't done this in a while, you know? Like, it's been... Yeah. This is... We recorded a lot of those batches together, and now this is the first time that we've sat down you to know, do a real episode. We're actually in uncharted territory, because the first five episodes, we knew exactly what every episode was going to be, and, like, now we're starting to branch off into, like, what kind of shape does the rest of this podcast take yeah because we're gonna do this for years forever this is gonna be this podcast is never gonna end there's gonna be hundreds of episodes of talking about twilight imperium that's the hope we're going to make twilight imperium insanely popular and then we're going to run it into the ground (laughs) by talking about it too much so to kick that off today we want to kind of introduce our pre-release theoretical uh, we're calling it a tier list, but it's not really a tier list. It's more softly worded than a tier list yeah. for like a fighting game or something stupid like that. Right, right. So the thing we want to drive home about this tier list, and we're about to get into it, we're going to break it down race by race, tier by tier, uh, and kind of give our reasons for why we think each race belongs in each tier. But it's important to know these tiers center around more game concepts than they do just like absolute strength um there's been a lot of talk in the community recently about like are there the best races and the worst races and there's a lot of kind of people who think like you know maybe it's it's more dynamic than that and i think we agree to a certain extent i think there are definitely more dynamic yeah there are definitely races that are gonna be better than others or maybe we should say easier to play than others easier to win with um, but, like, every single race in Twilight Imperium can win games of TI for sure. Like, that that's mm-hmm. unquestionable. So we're not trying to say, um, outside of maybe one particular race, that any of them are awful. The um, Yin who must not be what? named. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we want to break down um, into these kind of different uh, categories. Yeah, we have tier categories. They're not, like, A, B, C, like, yeah. anything, like, so absolute as that. But there are races that we we looked at and we kind of grouped them together like okay so these kind of make sense together these make sense yeah. together and in within each category i would say there's also not a particular pecking order it's mm-hmm. just like these are all races that apply to this category now saying that though this this list will pr- probably change mm-hmm. once we actually mm-hmm. play the game so this Again, is this really is, just our first pass this is a theoretical this what we're doing here is setting up our expectations so that we know we have metrics to judge from once we have the game once we have the game we'll be able to look at things and go this is what we anticipated this race to play like does it play like that is it better than that is it worse than that and we will build better tier lists as we go based on how we kind of play off of this list Mm -hmm. yeah people uh someone asked uh, like i guess it would be like a couple weeks back now like what race we're looking forward to most playing um and I don't know, when we were addressing that, I realized, like, I'm I'm going to play every single yeah, race, for yeah, sure. Absolutely. Definitely. Let's jump into it. Uh, first things first, I think I want to go over what each of the categories are going to be. Groupings. So that you kind of know what is coming. Uh, so, the first one we'll talk about are our races that we believe are objective-focused. This means there are objective cards, public and secret, and these are the races that are that have abilities that are most easily suited to just straight up completing those objectives. Right. TI3 is a game where you win through completing the objectives, and these are the races that just can complete these easier than everyone else. It seems else. obvious how their abilities yes. will feed into them getting victory points. Yes. The second category will be races with powerful abilities, um, and the difference here is ones that they don't necessarily just like automatically get you objectives, but the races... are the abilities are so powerful that it is easy to see how you could use those abilities to eventually get you objectives, but it's more of a two-step process. Right, yes. 
Third up will be our questionable strategy grouping, which is to say these are races that there's more variables. There's more variables to their strategy. If their strategies go well, they'll all be really great races. I would say the biggest thing with this category will be these are races that were so used to being bad in TI3, but they've gotten upgrades that we're very curious right now to see how. Well, and some of them are good races. TI3 yeah, that have gotten that knocked have down. Kind of like, so these are the ones with the biggest changes that we're kind of we don't know where to put them yet. So it just depends on if the strategy that we see viable with them, if that is going to get them points. Mm-hmm. And then, then there's a very interesting group. There's a special tier called the Yin tier, um, and really it's just m- me having to stick it to Yin. Really, they probably lay within the questionable strategy thing, but I'm going to make the case that their strategy is not questionable it's just bad yeah so we've decided the answer to the question is no and then we're gonna play and who knows and we'll probably be wrong it'll be so much fun to to a 180 of the yin after so long of talking then we have um a tier that is what we call the lack of versatility these are the races that just seem like you're kind of only given one option for success and based on all the different factors of the game if that one option isn't going to be a path to success you have no other options you're doomed like you're, you're just going to fall behind yeah and phrasing it the way we phrase it i think is the best way to say that there are bad races in ti because yes. there's not there's not they're not bad it's just that you're not given as a versatility like yeah. you're not allowed to kind of make up your Explore own strategy you're kind of told exactly yes. how to play them yeah and then the final one that we'll get into and again this is not like from best to worst, but our final tier is going to be this incredibly situational tier. We have a couple races that are just so, they're going to have such high variance in their games that it's impossible to put them in any other list because when they win, they're going to win big. And when they lose, they're going to lose big. And there's mm-hmm. just no, there's no consistency to them. Yeah. And I think the the way we phrase it, it will be useful for players to think about these races, mm-hmm. to see that you've drawn a race that we've described as situational. It is going to be useful to you to think, okay, I haven't necessarily drawn a bad race, but I need to think about creating the optimum yes. situation for yeah. this race. Yeah. Let's jump into our objective-focused races. I think these are the easiest to talk about because they should all be fairly straight lace of what you're going to do. First up, our namesake... The Space Cats, the Emirates of Hakan. Um, with each of these races, we've kind of come up with like a slogan for how you win. Uh, and the Emirates of Hakan are they win through economy. Because the Emirates of Hakan, they just make money. They make more money. They make more money than everybody. And, um, the- and I've we've, we've heard from people who have played TI4 that this has not changed, that they're still raking in dough. Yep. The meta might be a problem right they they might be easy to blacklist and cut out of the markets but i just feel like they're going to be making so much money that they're going to find a way to get their trade goods out there and get more in return Mm -hmm. they Um, don't have especially strong combat abilities they don't um they like with your economy you're going to use that to either make like buy tech yeah if you have a lot of tech vps um, you're going to spend it on a lot of units, and that's how you'll beat um, your more combat-focused yep. uh, races by just having more stuff than them. Yep. Uh, yeah, using money to get... If you look at the VPs that are available... We, we've kind of broken up all the objective cards, and there's really, I would say, there's... I have it listed as five uh, different types of objectives, but I think it's really three. Uh, one of them is planet control and i lump into that battle um objectives because there's like there's five secret objectives that just rely on you destroying stuff and then there's 21 points worth of objectives that you just need to control a set a number of types of planets Uh, and then you've got your tech objectives there's eight points of those you've got your economy objectives there's 10 points of those and that's things like spend this much influence spend this many trade goods uh and then finally there's kind of a catch-all, which I've just said is like other components. You know, you, it's your spend your command counters or discard five action cards or have three space stocks on the board. Um, that's that's kind of a, just a miscellaneous thing. But So really we could say like four categories of objectives. And the biggest one to note is planet control plus battle objectives account for 26 points, mm-hmm. which is more than half. So races that can be aggressive and get on the board 
are more likely to win you points. And Hakan, being able to just buy huge amounts of fleets with all of their money, are going to be able to accomplish that. And then they're going to spend their excess money on tech to earn all the tech points. And they're right. going to have all the other excess money to just spend their eight resources to get the victory point. I mean, there's nothing more straight-laced than I have a lot of trade goods, and one of the victory points is to spend five trade goods. Like, obviously, they're getting that objective. Right. No questions asked. Right. For sure. A lot of these VPs can just be accomplished pretty much automatically by yes. Hakon. Yes. Um, so next up is the universities of Jolnar. Uh, we said that they win through tech. Um, and that kind of has two folds to it. One is there are tech objectives. And as the Jolnar player, you should get every single one of those without even thinking about it. It's mm-hmm. probably the most automatic objectives anyone should be getting because for some of them, you practically start with them. You, you start with the ability to get any of them round one. That's for sure. Um, and then from there... You're going to take such huge benefits from getting good tech quickly that you're going to be able to make up for all of your combat losses, and you're going to be able to take planets. You're going to get all those planet control things because you're going to end up having an incredibly good fleet because you've upgraded all the units or you've gotten so much tech that your PDS are just firing at every single thing that comes near them. Mm-hmm. Or there's just so many different things you can do. And I think the biggest factor with a Jolnar is... We're just so used to the TI3 Jolnar being amazing, and it, we don't see any significant losses. So, I, If anything, it seems that because the game is simplified tech, uh, that their advantage in tech is more pronounced because right. there's less tech, right. basically. So as an already incredibly good objective-focused uh, race... We don't see them having gotten any worse, so it's hard to put them in any other category. There's been a lot of talk of uh, kneecapping the Jolnar and that being necessary to your strategy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that just seems, that seems like a very, very risky, for it to be necessary to have to kneecap a race, to me that means that the race is strong. Right. Every race can be kneecapped out of relevance, but like for Jolnar, for that to be a requirement of how you defeat them means that they're better at getting objectives than everybody else. Right. Like, that's the only reason that you would feel that way. And also, I mean, don't take it for granted. I mean, they have the negative one early game, but they can overcome that pretty quickly with upgrades. They have two of the best upgrades available to them immediately. They they can get upgraded cruisers, and they can get upgraded fighters instantly. First round. And PDS. And PDS. Well, whatever. Up there with Hakan are the Jolnar. Uh, the next race we want to talk about that's objective-focused is the L1-Z1X MindNet. Um, and the tagline we've come up for them is to win through control. Um, honestly, when it comes down to it, we f- just feel like the, the L1-Z1 combat abilities are just very, very strong. Yeah. Much stronger than um, any of the other like super combat-focused yeah. um, races. I'll say this much. This is the one we debated the most about we putting in this a lot. category. Because yeah. although when we first talked about Lizix, we we were big in their favor, we have since realized, like, okay, first off, their rules don't apply to Hunter's Law. They're mm-hmm. not something you're using all the time. But when you are using them, you're getting huge benefits out of them. I mean, the ability to take a space dock and a PDS, although that's going to happen once or twice a game... It's still very, very good. And then Harrow is just, everyone agrees, completely... I mean, no one takes planets better than the Lizix. Yeah. The, and if controlling planets is what you need to earn victory points, that's that's worth a lot. Mm-hmm. And having... having Like, a lot of the combat races, they have, like, a specific unit that is, has been decided to be, like, their unit. And having good Dreadnoughts seems like a really great yeah. unit. Yeah. Um, as, especially as far as the cost to, like how much you're getting out of them yeah they're they've they start with better dreadnoughts they're gonna get even better ones they've got all this tech that makes their dreadnoughts better to have your whole kind of army planned around your dreadnoughts i mean most players do that anyways and you have the best ones available like a lot of players play around having good dreadnoughts and good cruisers and you start a step ahead so Obviously, what the argument we're making is that any of the combat-focused VPs are going to be easily taken mm-hmm. by the mine net. Um, the thing, though, with inheritance systems, the racial tech, they can take any tech that they want, right, yeah. without just ignoring all of the upgrades, which means that 
they're not necessarily better at getting the tech objectives. It's just that the tech objectives, when they get them, are going to fall in line perfectly yeah. with whatever combat strategy they have. Right. So in that way, I feel like it is a very strong advantage. They Absolutely. don't have good commodities. They bad commodities. Bad, straight up bad commodities. Bad I mean, commodities. Only having two commodities. So, so they're not going to be a big part of the trade game necessarily. The, the other thing is they start really great. I mean, they start with some of the best, one of the best fleets. They have a the second best home system. They have really great starting tech. Like if we're judging things on by their ability to like hit the ground running, Lizix is also winning that. So just just from the sheer fact of like they can set up their economy and keep going, they're they're in one of the best positions. Yeah, they're like the combat focused race that has like a lot of different basic advantages yeah. in like other fields. And that's kind of I felt like how they were in TI three was it was just like wow they're they're really good. They have good dreadnoughts, and they also have like really great starting tech. Yep. Um, and yeah, that, a lot of that stuff is carried through. Yeah. So our last objective-focused um, race is a one that requires different metrics to evaluate them, and that's the Nalu Collective. Um, first, let's start with what we've already been talking about. They start with arguably the best starting tech that's not to say like obviously jolnar has more and better tech but if you're going to start with two tech they start with the two that you want in sarween tools and neural motivator having those two at your disposal and not having to worry about getting them later is incredibly powerful i mean they're one of the few races outside of l1z1x yasaro and jolnar that start with the ability to have two action cards every round so they're going to be versatile in that way um, and they're going to start with production bonuses and Sarween tools. Um, basically, by every normal metric, I would say Nalu is playing even with everyone else. They have a better start, and then they're just as good as everybody else at combat and everything like that. They've got this ability to have better fighters, so mm-hmm. they're going to keep up with combat races because they're going to have just huge fighter screens. It's a big, big thing to, to do with them. And then the final thing that we have to judge them on is the fact that they have the zero initiative. And this is where we put them in this objective-focused tier because otherwise we would just say their abilities are powerful. But games are won by the Nalu because they get to claim objectives first. If Hunter and I are completely even the whole game, every time we score points, we both score the same points, and we're at nine in the last round, when push comes to shove, I get to claim my objective before him because I go first. And that is just a huge advantage that we can't really overlook. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a race that just has like a lot of really great abilities, uh, like uh, pretty much hitting all of the notes, tech, um, great units. I mean, having stronger fighters, fighters are like such an important combat unit and that they have better ones that that their focus is in fighters, I think makes them uh, a strong combat race. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just the tie-breaking ability of having the zero initiative of always scoring first, of always moving first. That is like that's Hunter's Law in <laughs> big, big letters, big yeah. pink letters, yeah. right it in the sky. Yeah. So yeah, that wraps up objective focused. All right, so our next group of races that we want to talk about are races that have powerful abilities. Um, these abilities are just across the board. Like these are also really good races. It's just that it's not as obvious to us how their abilities are going to get them points. Right. Or, it, yeah, it just doesn't seem as much of a, like, duh, they're yeah. going to get that. Right. Um, the first uh, race we want to talk about in the powerful abilities, I feel like, is the race that we have changed our minds the most about yeah. um, since starting the podcast, and that is the Federation of Soul. I think when we first started the podcast, we just are both two people that didn't play Soul in TI3. Yeah. So we were kind of like underwhelmed yeah. by their abilities They just didn't at first. change much. So we were just kind of like, okay, we, we get them. We understand mm-hmm. how this works. But we really missed the command counter economy thing. And also, uh, we talked about it, but capacity uh, as well has kind of morphed around yeah. Soul and emphasized those abilities. Basically, capacity and... Com- we... we <laughs> Did we did we skip the Nalu win through line? Oh, we did. Yeah, we Let's did. Go back. Well, and it's just that the the Nalu win through the meta game. Mm-hmm. If anything, it's they win through ties. You know, it's the the Nalu are going to 
succeed because they were even with everybody else and then had the one ability that gives them the victory. Mm-hmm. And also, Nalu, uh, if we were going to talk about a weakness of the Nalu, they might possibly have a capacity yes. problem. Yeah. Uh, because of relying so heavily on fighters and everyone's capacity being a little bit lower. Okay, and now, segue into the soul, they have the best capacity. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, I think, there's a little Not- bit of wiggle room as to how big of a deal that is. Yeah. I think, but it is like an across the board, always going to be better. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what's a, that's what is so good about it is they start with better and they upgrade to even better. At, and it's easy upgrades too. We're not talking about like they have to go down these hard tech trees to get like they start almost immediately able to upgrade to advanced carriers and to upgrade their ground forces. Mm-hmm. So like they're going to have huge fleets of fighters and ground forces and they're gonna take stuff so they're going to get these control planet objectives the fact that they're getting this one additional command counter just feels like it's going to be enough to consistently put them over the top now the big thing with them is if command counters and if capacity aren't as big of a hindrance as it feels like they're supposed to be then soul lost all of these things that we think make them now powerful. Right. Um, so that's going to be the big thing we look at when we play games as soul and we watch people play games as soul is, is the economy of command counters as tight as everyone kind of makes it out to be, or is it not so bad? And maybe soul didn't get that big of a boost. Yeah. I feel like in talking about it, I, I think potentially we could see soul slip down a little bit further mm-hmm. on this list for us. I don't see them necessarily popping up to the top yeah. per se, but I could see them losing their spot. There is a bit of a question mark with the command counters yeah. thing. How much, uh, how important is that? How big is that going? Uh, how much is it going to help them? Basically? Yeah. I feel like I stand by the capacity. Thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Next up is the barony of Letnev. Oh, it's worth noting. The soul is that we just said they literally win through capacity and command counters. Yes. I mean, that that's a big thing that's to they have. Win. And that's a, that's, where you're going to make your victory count is is always having more stuff than everybody else and having more actions. Mm-hmm. So uh, the Barony Aletnev, they win through capital ships because they start with a good fleet. Your fleet supply is always going to be better than everybody else's. And your ability to upgrade your capital ships is way 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 better than everybody else's not just talking about like their one racial tech is good i think their one racial tech is the best tech in the game as far as improving your units so Mm -hmm. for them to get that one fairly cheap tech means they can do a lot with their capital ships and with that they're gonna win fights they're they're gonna storm around the galaxy now the the downside to that and the reason it's not just like clearly objective focused is that's going to cost a lot of money. Yeah, and in that way, they are a little bit less flexible than a race like the L1Z1 or um, but really just any of the races that we've talked about because yeah. their strategy is so specifically capital ships. Yeah. Capital ships cost money, yeah. um, and it's not clear that Barony has a lot of different ways to make money. Yeah. Their commodities aren't great. They have a good starting world. That's kind yes. of like the same. They have the best race. starting world. They have and, the and best starting the, world. The fact that they have a one of the best starts in the game is what kind of saves them from having a questionable strategy. Like normally I would say, you know, if you have to go so hard in expensive units, that maybe isn't great, but they start with the ability to tackle that problem. They start with a huge amount of money and the ability to get more money. Um, So they are equipped to be able to deal with that issue. Mm -hmm. I think what, what I like about how we're doing this discussion is as you're going, you're just going to notice we're just going to have more questions about each race. Yeah. These races are all powerful, but there's always at least one little question mark. Mm-hmm. Um, the next uh, race that we want to talk about is the Mentac Coalition. <laughs> the tagline we wrote is a win through mobility. Uh, they emphasize cruisers, which I believe is probably the best uh, unit upgrade uh, in the game. Yeah. Of Having that three movement um, is awesome. Um, they're less good with money as a race like Hakan. Right. Um, and they are, a, the thing about Mentac is you're going to have to pimp their ability a little bit. Right. You might be able to get those economy objectives, but it's going to take a little bit more effort on your part to do it. If their ability is such that, like, if trade works out where everyone's always trading and Mentac kind of can do it pretty easily, I would almost bump them up a little bit, but it doesn't seem like 
you're going to be able to game the system so hard that you just like fly away from everyone with money. Mm-hmm. Now, if you get that racial tech where your trade goods are worth double the amount, that's a that's a big bonus, and that's going to be what helps you get those victory points that maybe are otherwise difficult to get. Mm-hmm. Um, but because it requires so much effort on your part to get everywhere, that could be that could be the problem for you. And the pre-fire ability though is also the pre-fire really ability awesome. helps you with that. The, the fact that you can get out there early and take planets that are in other people's pie slices just because you're able to take out their small fleets quickly that that's a big deal. And and you need to find ways to get those planets so that you can get planet control objectives quickly i would say if we're talking about early versus late game races mentac is one of those ones that i think does the best at being an early game race and still being able to maintain itself into the late game. right you have to maintain the advantage yeah basically. and they're good at maintaining that a lot mm-hmm. of races can take an early advantage but don't have a lot to hold on to it in mentac they can hold on mm-hmm. finally for our powerful abilities is the arborek who we said they win through production and i think a lot of people agree that the new arborek the way they've changed kind of the restrictions on the arborek just seems like you're going to constantly grow and you're going to have so much stuff the big difference for other races is sometimes you can get in the way of someone and you can stop them from building that next fleet or you you give them a reason to not spend all their money on one big fleet this turn but arborek Every single action they take, they're building a couple of units. So they are constantly, steadily growing to where by the end of the game, they just have so much stuff, it's it's almost impossible to, to stop them. They're just going to be so far ahead of everybody, and it's not easy to stop them in one round because, like I said, they're doing it every single action. So, okay, yeah, maybe you get in their way on this side of the galaxy, but they're also over here building stuff over there. Mm-hmm. It's kind of similar to Hakan where I feel like their units aren't particularly like more powerful than right. other combat more combat focused uh, races are it just comes down to the efficiency of it you should basically. have more of those you will have units. more units than everyone else because you don't ha- necessarily have an economic bonus but every time you assimilate a new yeah. planet into your fold you can just constantly uh re- refresh yourself in a way that is very efficient yes yes and if there's any race that I think we are questioning if this is the right spot for them, it's Arborek, mainly because they've had such a huge jump up from where they were. Um, this ability went from needlessly restricted upon mm-hmm. overly to, complicated to completely open-ended that it's it's just hard to say if this is exactly where they belong. It feels right, but they could be even better than this. Uh, or they could drop down. Um, I think if anything's going to happen, it's going to be that this is a way better ability than we're even expecting. Yeah, I think so too. But it's right now we're, we want to leave them in this category and and kind of play it by ear. They're another race that the game has kind of morphed around them, mm-hmm. basically. Our next uh, category is our races that have kind of questionable strategies. And the way to think about these is not bad they're not bad bad. it's just you have to really know what you're going to be doing with them and exactly how you plan to get your objectives with your abilities basically we can come up with a strategy for each of these but does that strategy get you victory points is a whole other question Uh, and the first one to talk about with that is the yasaral tribes and i think this is a great example of this problem which is they they start with a great fleet they start with good tech they have all these things at their disposal but their abilities have been nerfed in such a way that it's hard to say if just using action cards in crazy ways, if that's going to actually win them the game. It seems powerful. It seems like a good ability, but does that get you anywhere necessarily? Also, you have to keep in mind in some ways they've been nerfed from TI3 because there's less uh, action cards. Right. Uh, And just, I mean... There's less variety, so you're going to see more things in their hand we definitely think that the yasaro the win through surprise and that is a hugely powerful thing in ti but they have less surprises now mm-hmm. so we put this one in questionable because they started so high in ti3 and they've dropped down significantly and i can't say that their strategy is going to be especially effective yet until i've got my hands on them yeah it's it's a big question mark with the sorrel because they were so obviously just like the de facto great race yeah. um in ti3 
Uh, and yeah, they so clearly have been nerfed yeah. with the stall ability, just being take taken down from being something that you could almost take for granted. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah. I think that's the big thing too, that maybe we've misrepresented in the past. We, I, I, we've seen a lot of flack of people saying like, no, they can still stall doing this, this, and this. And it's not that we're saying they can't stall. We're saying stalling costs so much, you're just not going to necessarily want to do it as often. So stalling is not your key to success anymore because, yeah, you're going to be able to gain more action cards. And in some ways, you should just probably want to hold on to those action cards. Like why burn all of your action cards on stalling when you can use those action cards to be unpredictable? When we talked about them, we used the word pruning a lot uh, because I think that's really going to be the problem is that you're going to just have a real nice juicy hand of action cards to burn them to do stall. It's just going to be hard. And and that's also, I think, why we have them. There's so many question marks with them. We really need to get our hands on them to play them to understand when you're in these situations, what is that cost and how much do you feel like, okay, it's time to stall and it's worth it. Yeah. That's really hard to figure out. With stalling specifically too, because stalling is inaction. So it's hard to see how you're gaining specific benefits from just stalling. Now, as most experienced TI players know, there are definitely valuable times to stall. There's, there's always, Oh, I can't do that yet. I got to wait till he moves into this system before I attack. But for newer players, that can be a very difficult concept to understand. So they're questionable for us. Mm -hmm. Uh, The next race we want to talk about is the Sardak Nor. Our tagline for them is that they win through efficient aggression. Uh, Their advantage, I mean, honestly, in TI3, I feel like I would put them even lower uh, than this. Uh, Their advantage, like we've discussed previously, is like a lot better in the early game before people have all upgraded their units. They've been fixed in some ways. Like, they have a lot better starting fleet. Absolutely. A much better starting fleet. Um, But there's no tech. You have no tech at all. You start with zero tech. That's a big minus to have on them because, I mean, there are eight points worth of tech-related objectives, and to a certain extent, you're not going to get any of them. Because especially for me, the way I think about Sardak is I'm not starting with tech, and my ability is that I have better fighting units. So I just need to invest all of my money in keeping those units on the board. So I'm not going to spend a turn spending a bunch of money on tech. I'm going to always be spending all of my money on keeping my fleets relevant. Yeah, they don't they don't feed into each other well, this yeah. disadvantage with cuz because Sardak needs to be playing more aggressive earlier mm-hmm. and buying more and more units. Uh, economically it doesn't make sense that you're going to be able to maintain this combat advantage while also having to catch up and tech from nothing right so to that end it's questionable because it's it kind of plays into just like how good does tech end up being can they stay relevant in the mid to late game can they win before the late game without having getting any tech um i think when you talk about ti you never end a game before the mid game there's just not enough points hitting the board and even by the mid game like you have to be very very lucky with the public objective layout to have any sort of Mm -hmm. idea of getting a victory so most games go into the late game just purely because there's not enough objectives out yet and so for sardak nor you can take early wins but how are you going to hold on to those? And that that's where their strategy gets questionable. Yeah, and I think, uh, honestly, with Sardak Nor, I almost considered putting them in the lack of versatility yeah. tier. But it, there is the plus some versatility. one combat. Yeah, yeah. There's, there is a lot more versatility than the races that we did throw into that um, tier or group. Yeah. Um, but it just seems they seem to be a little bit handicapped yeah. in a way that is uh, not easily... Like, the Jolnar are obviously handicapped, but they... Like we have a way to come out of that. Yeah, they have a way to come out of it. it yeah. Honestly, it never really seems if to be that big Sardag of a deal. If the Sardagnor is the opposite of the Jolnar, the Jolnar gain more from getting a lot of tech than the Sardak gain from having a plus one to combat. Because I honestly, I don't think the minus one to combat does that much to the Jolnar. Right. Ignoring the fact that they're going to be able to make up for a tech, I don't think minus one to all combat rolls does enough to hurt you if you if you can plan around that so comparatively sardagnor having just a plus one just doesn't seem like enough 
to like put you because, leagues ahead of anybody right else. and because you start behind in tech yeah. everybody else doesn't like they're they're gonna get yeah. ahead in tech they're gonna upgrade their units and mm-hmm. once they once they've upgraded their units you don't Are have you relevant? an advantage yeah. yeah you your advantage is gone so it just seems hard to me to play like the way some people have described Stardak Nora being like you need to be aggressive early but then also like apparently you can afford to just fall behind in tech like right. that it's Start, again, we're not trying to say that any of these races are bad except for maybe the Yen. Um, but, yeah, it, you just seem kind of cornered a little right. bit with Sardag right. Nor. Next up is the Extra Kingdom. Um, and we love this race, which is why it's so sad to put them in, like, a questionable strategy thing. I think one reason we put them here is they were 100% my worst race in TI3. Mm-hmm. Just, there's not even a question how, how bad I think that they were. Their abilities just didn't seem to do anything for them to get points. And their main kind of, like, glory ability hasn't changed. I mean, politics does not... Like, being able to stop a bad political card doesn't win you the game. It's it just, very situational. It, it saves you from yeah. a bad thing, but it doesn't get you a good thing necessarily. So what we're doing is we're having to put all of the onus on how good is Peace Accords. Mm-hmm. And Peace Accords seems great to me. Uh, and the way you turn Peace Accords into an even better thing is the fact that you start with Graviton and you can get that flagship that has amazing space cannons and you have to make the most of that. So you need to get a good economic early game by expanding into planets that you otherwise wouldn't be able to get to and get that flagship on the board and then start hurting people and the planets that you took early you need to go out and put dudes on them and you need to put pds's on them because you win through turtling you win through never losing a single thing you took yeah honestly i mean even just describing them how specifically we have to bring up like the flagship strategy and how that synchronizes with graviton laser that it just it's again it just comes down to like how specific right. is the race? Yeah. How specific are the things that you need to do with The them? races that win most often are the ones that you can summarize in big, broad strokes. Yeah. And at this level, these categories that we're getting into, we're talking about such specific strategies that it's like, well, you, you can't put them on the same metric because Jolnar just gets a lot of tech. Ex-Cha, you have to get this one flagship and utilize it in this way and do this thing. Yeah, and that's a specific strategy you could do, and it might not always make it that much of a difference. Right. Um, The next one that we should probably talk about is the Clan of Sar. Um, The tagline we've come up for them is, you should win by taking more than you lose. Um, This positioning, I think in general, we're both kind of like, we're really not sure what the Sar is like now. they very much like the Arborek have kind of gotten this like production bonus because yeah. the rules of production have changed. But in that way, the Arborek is uh, mu- obviously much ha- is much better for it. Yeah. Um, the Sar, though, I mean, they have a good starting fleet. Um, the the problem I think with Sar that we always come back to is like the the theme kind of informs this racial strategy that seems to be like kind of uh, just like easily stopped i yeah. mean the fact that you have to like kind of stack everything into this one mm-hmm. ball is kind or of easily a giant ignored target. yeah also it's just like is it that big of a deal yeah. do other because if, if you're walking through the galaxy with like let's say even say two big fleets but never like leaving too much behind someone else is going to be able to come through and just take the stuff back from you which mm-hmm. means you're never holding on to like a large amount of planets which means you're not getting any of the planet control objectives so it's just hard to see. You, you might be able to get the economy ones because you should be taking a lot of planets so you get a lot of trade goods, but it's hard to see where you get your win from. The strategy seems cool. It seems fun to do. It's cool to just get all around the board and, and not worry about your home system. But in what way does that get you a victory? I think uh, it's really hard to actually work their economic abilities. Yeah. I think it requires a lot of finesse yes. because you have to be taking new planets all of the time, which means that you do have to kind of almost like strategically lose planets exactly. in order to make exactly. that like work. And then you get into the whole cost of like, well, if I lose the planet, then it goes to someone. Like yeah. I could have just gotten the resources from it. It's like it's really hard to break down how right. they can get an economic advantage. If they can, though, if they yes. can be like a race that is like mobility with economics, I could see them being bumped up. Yeah. But for now, they yeah they seem very questionable. If I had to redefine this tier list, I would leave everything we've said so far in the same order. But I would say races that are best for new players, best for 
intermediate players and best for expert players. Yeah, that's how we're you in the territory this. of like the clan Asar in a player who really knows how to take advantage of every little aspect. They're gonna be able to do a lot with them, but a brand new player is gonna get clan Asar and not do anything that helps them. They're just right. gonna run around the galaxy and and kind of accomplish nothing. Yeah, that's definitely a way to look at these questionable races. Is like new players are straight up going to miss what yeah. the point is or what they're supposed to be doing, basically. Yeah. Uh, so now we want to talk about the Yin Brotherhood. <laughs> we did an entire episode on the Yin Brotherhood, so we're, we're going to try to make this quick, but our tagline for them is that you win through extortion. We made this a big point at the end of our Yin episode, but it's just that we, we think that all of their abilities cost so much with little to no economic benefits for you yourself... You, you win all sorts of economic benefits for the board. You take someone strong out of the game, and that helps everybody. But it doesn't always help you. So in that way, your abilities are almost a hindrance to you. Because mm-hmm. how else are you going to find a way to make gains? And the only way you do that is through extorting people and, and taking advantage of the fact that you have this ability and telling people that you intend to use this ability so that you end up not using the ability and instead getting economic gains. God, how and, complicated and was so that? It's, yeah, it's so incredibly complicated that it's uh, for a new player they're not going to be able to take advantage of that in a way that gives them a victory. They're going to be able to take advantage of that in a way that totally wipes someone else out, but I do not see a new player playing as the Yin Brotherhood and winning a game. Yeah, I I don't see how that would ever happen. Because to to understand how you need to game the system with their ability is to understand a lot about Twilight Imperium. And that's just our theory, too. Like we're, We're kind of taking our theory and being like, okay, well, this must be how you do it i can't wait to test it man i can't wait to actually sit down and play them more than any other race we'll see where this one falls into a into a better defined category later on because you know maybe we'll very quickly learn how much better this race is at you know maybe it does earn these things for itself and and because it only sent one destroyer to take out a carrier with some ground forces maybe that is a big win for them and we just aren't understanding how that's a big win for them i'll say this though they seem like especially in looking in grouping the races together like this they seem so different from every race like they really do they don't fit into any of no they they're not cookie they're they don't cookie cutter into any of the other types of advantages that other races right. have. A lot of these races, you know, when you start looking at them like this, you can find a lot of similarities yeah. between their advantages. My closest comparison with the Yin Brotherhood has always been the Mentak Coalition because the Mentak Coalition has a similar idea of what they want to do. They kind of want to get all over the place and they want to threaten people and they want to destroy small fleets. But to me, the Mentak are just straight up better at that because they take pre-fire shots and the Yin have to endure an entire round of combat and then lose their unit to gain the benefit Mm -hmm. it's a good benefit but they have to get to that point whereas the mentak can stroll into a small fleet and kill the fleet before it has a chance to do anything at all period yeah and they get two hits yeah as opposed to that and if you're gonna bring up then the that yin gets to decide yeah that's it they get to decide but they're doing it once kind of their only their only thing that's it's not much of a thing so now we get into stranger territory with our group of races that lack versatility um and this is we can't really judge these races based on how good is the ability at getting them points because our problem with these races is that they kind of only have one option of getting points and so to us it really just either depends on the game or depends on if that strategy ends up being worth anything right yeah i think i think saying that they have a lack of versatility is us saying like the one thing we can say for for sure is that this isn't versatile now i mean maybe it is powerful enough to get them a lot of points in a lot of games but it definitely doesn't have versatility so the first one up is the most obvious answer for this which is the winu um and everyone knows the winu win if they can get mechatol rex there's Mm -hmm. not really any other option for the winu because without mechatol rex they are playing with no abilities um, so there's almost not even much for us to say about the Winu. It's just a matter of if taking Mechatol Rex and holding it works, then it's going to work. And I think Winu will be really fun to play in that way. I think some people harp on them because there's, because there's no versatility with them, but 
you know, in games where I draw the Winu, I'm going to be excited because I'm going to get to do that strategy that no other race can do as well as that. Right, right. And I'm excited to do the Mechatol Rex strategy. I think that is going to be very, very fun. I think but, it'll be fun to play the Winu as well. Yeah. I just don't see them winning. Yeah. If, if that ability doesn't end up leading to victory very easily, then we have a problem on our yeah. hands. I also feel like they're a race that we've harped on pretty explicitly yeah and i feel like we have kind of talked it through basically yeah yeah. it's the most interesting one because i can't say it's bad i just know it's only the one thing it is that one thing that you can do right and the other race that lacks versatility is the embers of muat and this one for me was the hardest race to define yeah it's their advantage it's a very specific advantage um it's just I mean, it's War Suns. It's yeah. we literally the tagline we wrote is "Embers win by not losting your War Sun," because if that's your advantage that you have yeah. a War Sun, and you then you have it. to work that as much as you can. You yep. need to be aggressive with it early game, but not lose it. Right. And when it gets to the point where everyone else has War Suns, you need to have the better War yep. Sun. If this is your advantage, then you just have to feed into that. Yeah. And I don't really see. What else you can do yeah. besides just playing, leaning into that war sun? They're interesting because if we're looking at it statistically, if we're looking, I don't know if I, statistics probably isn't the right word, but if we're looking at it just like economically, they have the best starting units. Their starting units are worth the most amount of resources, but that doesn't mean they're the best at expanding. They really only have the one war sun. So right off the bat, you're starting from behind because you need to get more carriers and ground forces mm-hmm. out there so that you can get any sort of economy online. So with the Embers, you're starting with this like, oh my gosh, if you don't have a great round one and round two, you might be screwed. Right. Um, because the biggest thing is if you lose that War Sun and you didn't get your economy online, you're not going to be able to replace that War Sun. You're not going to have the money to replace that War Sun. Mm-hmm. They start so, literally with all the eggs in one basket. Yeah, yeah. And so... You know, maybe the, the maybe the strategy will be fine because that war sun should be pretty hardy. Uh, I think you definitely need to get duranium armor, and you need to you know have a lot of ability to get out there and and take stuff without losing it. But that could be really hard to do. Um, mm-hmm. You you have a big target on your back for a lot of players. A lot of players see those war suns and and go, I need to deal with that problem because if I don't deal with that problem now, it'll only become like, the only thing scarier than a war sun is a war sun with a bunch of fighters around it For and, sure. like, a, a fleet with it. A also lone war sun is easy to take out in knowing some that Knowing everything that you're saying does encourage people to attack you early yeah, game. Absolutely. Because it's like, oh, man, if I go destroy that one war sun... He's never going to come back. Yeah, it's yeah. done. His game's over. Yeah. So, yeah, that's definitely a lack of versatility. Yeah. That's, yeah, very singular. Um, our final tier... Uh, we only have two races left, so maybe you've already mathed it and you know <laughs> what we're about to talk about. Um, we're just calling like a situational tier. Uh, I, I feel like the both of these races kind of sit outside of everybody mm-hmm. else when you're talking about yeah. advantages. Because depending on the type of setup, depending on the neighbors that you have, yep. depending on the, the galaxy that you've set up, both of these races could be very good or completely shut out when of the game. F- when we first started working on this list, we did have it as a best to worst uh, race. And if anything, these two are the ones that made us realize we can't do that. We cannot judge this game by this metric because these two races can fall in almost any tier depending on a whole set of circumstances. Right. And it's not in the same way as these, as the Windu and Embers where it's a lack of versatility. If they have the circumstances that they need, they're incredibly versatile. Right. But they just rely on really specific situations setup. yeah yep. uh the first one we want to talk about is the ghost of Creus. um and our tagline is the ghost win with an ideal galaxy <laughs> setup uh you and we talked about this a lot when we first covered them yeah you need those you got you have to have at least one wormhole near you yeah which is which so is why i'm still see. in favor of playing with the rules as they were set up because we got to a point with ti3 where we were always kind of making wormholes evenly distributed mm-hmm. but now i understand why like having a ghosts player in the game means they have this huge amount of importance in having at least one worm- wormhole right next to their home system right and and because of that it's like okay we gotta we gotta play by fantasy flights rules yeah on we this gotta one. Cause, yeah because we've talked about how the way we built um galaxies towards the end of ti3 after we you know i'd been through so many different 
house rules yeah. and like feelings of how we wanted to play um, is that we would kind of build it cooperatively. Right. And because uh, because we're kind of set back to zero now, as far yeah. as rules go, we're definitely going to have to go back and yeah. do it the, exactly the way it's intended. And depending on how easy it is to control that galaxy setup, maybe it's not so difficult for ghosts to end up in a situation that is good for them. You know, if, you, if you're able to tell people from the get-go, I'm the ghost and I want to make sure I have this, or, or you have to keep it secret, depending on how that strategy ends up working out, if you can make sure you end up next to a wormhole, that's going to be a lot better um, for you. I mean, if anything, I see the ghosts, if they do have that wormhole, if they have these kind of sets of circumstances, they're going to soar. They're going to do so well because they've got so much mobility at their disposal. They have so much ability to get next to trade potential trade partners. They have, you know, all these things that they need are suddenly solved. Um, I still think they have some issues where, like, there's some tech that's just kind of required for them to be good um and their flagship is hugely important to having like a really really cool useful strategy but both of those things are in service to a strategy that is very 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 good as opposed to like neutral or not great um Mm -hmm. if anything i think at worst ghosts are completely neutral yeah which isn't a terrible place to be no 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 it's not a bad place to be at all all right so our final race that we Mm -hmm. want to talk about um very situational uh really cool race i think possibly one of the coolest races is the necrovirus and our bad win line for them is the necro wins through big plays which kind of tells you how little we know about this was the hardest one for us to define and at first we had them with what we decided for Sardak Nor, which was win through efficient aggression. And I still stand by that a little bit. That it does make sense. That it makes sense, but there's something different going on with the Necro because more than anything, you rely on who your two neighbors are because right. that's going to determine what kind of tech advantages you get. Mm-hmm. Um, your, your game is decided from the onset, and anything else you can do is, is gaming the system from there. A game where you start next to Jolnar is going to be completely different than a game where you start you next know, to Sardak Noor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a completely different setup, and it changes what you're able to do drastically. Mm-hmm. And I think in any good Necro game, you're going to have to do pretty flashy plays. Yes. You're going to have to be very specific about who you target. Um, the fact that they, I mean, we've talked about a lot of races like, oh, you should probably be aggressive early. Necro has to be aggressive early. Like that even in, we've been talked about being like kind of turtley players. Um, we, even in our understanding of Twilight Imperium, Necro has to be early aggressive. Yeah. There's, there's no other option. Um, the, the worst case scenario is you start between two people with not great techs and two people that don't go for tech very much because then it's like, what do you, what do, you do? You got to just go to the other side of the galaxy and hope for the best. Um, mm-hmm. Because other, other than that, your only advantage is, and this isn't a terrible advantage, but your only other advantage is to get technology a lot and in that way get a lot of command, command counters. Right. Like your, your advantage is going to be in your ability to get lots of command counters and make more plays than anybody else. But yeah, you're you're going to have to play pretty risky and depending on how those risks pay off, yeah. that could result in a really crazy yeah. game for you. Right. I think more than any other race when Necro wins, they win huge. Like yeah, any game crazy. any game I've ever won as a Necro, it was by a landslide that I won. But when Necro loses, they are bottom of the pack. Mm-hmm. never were able to make up for their bad start right right Whew. so yeah that wow is... we just talked about every single race, every of Twilight race Imperium, in like, like pretty minutes. quickly yeah. oh my so, god that's our definitive theoretical non-definitive list yes it's a pre- definitively not <laughs> sure yet yeah. we'll get back to you yeah. list um but we're gonna post this on our twitter we'll post this on facebook we're gonna try to make it as readily available as we can uh we want this to be something people can continue to reference maybe you disagree with some of our points but we still think this is a decent baseline for judging how you play these races you know come back to this list so that you can decide whether or not things have moved up or down it yeah. Or not, not up or down, but have moved from one category to another. Right, you know, the it's best... like a baseline. It's also, I feel like, a summation of all of the race uh, discussions that we've had yeah. in all of the prior episodes, yeah. basically. And if there is a race 
where you were listening to this episode, like let's say you listen to this episode first for some reason. I don't know why you would do that. But <laughs> let's say you did and you're like, oh, you know, I feel like they just kind of like skirted over this race in the hour where they talked yeah. about 17 different things. Uh, you jerk. Um, <laughs> just go back to the racial discussion yeah. that we had, yeah. basically. Because this is trying to be like a summation of all of those yeah. discussions and be com- as yeah. comparative as possible. We wanted to hit as many points as we could. And Well, what are we going to talk about next? Well, let's, let's tell them that. Yeah. Let's tell them so where we're going next, next week. Uh, we're going to get a little bit more, I don't know, esoteric, maybe? Yeah, we're, we're the next kind of arc of the show, um, before we get to, uh, I know everyone wants us to do our first round like yeah. kind of strategy guide. Um, we don't feel like it's right for us to do that until we've actually gotten yeah. our hands it on would, these races and played them in TI4. It wouldn't be fair. There'd be too many things for the people who have played it to be able to pick apart because just in almost every circumstance, they would be right and we would be wrong. Of course. We yeah, haven't played it. We, we don't know what specific situations work best we don't know how much of an impact technology specialties play so instead of doing that right this minute for the next uh probably three two or, or three two or three episodes we'll before we get to actually having twilight here's the and way to define 4. it here's yeah, the way to there define we go. it until we have our hands on a copy of ti4 which is hopefully not too long we're gonna do a bunch of episodes saying goodbye to Twilight Imperium Third Edition. Yeah, we're There's, gonna be, we're gonna remember. We're gonna look back. We're gonna talk about uh, house rules that mm-hmm. we played with. We're gonna talk about specific memories of TI three games. We're gonna get all teary eyed yeah. and say goodbye to something. I mean, that we spent. I mean, hundreds hours and, and hours, hundreds yeah. of hours playing, basically. And we know all of you did too. So hopefully, you enjoy saying goodbye with us. Mm-hmm. So until we say goodbye, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, but also hello. We've got some more errata to do this week, and uh, it's just me this time. Hunter is off on a comedy tour across the nation. We'll talk more about that later, but first, let's get into the errata. Not too much this week. Darkmancer from the Board Game Geek forums said the SAR note will be used a lot. Every time the SAR player is invaded and he thinks he won't win the ground combat, the note can be used to save ground force losses to both players. Um, This is an interesting idea in that um, the SAR player can just always be holding on to their transaction note, and anytime anyone wants to touch them, just be like, uh, let me leave, here you go. But I kind of wonder how often the aggressor is going to actually want to take them up on that. Because, I mean, I know for me personally, if I'm going to attack your stuff, I want to kill your dudes. Like, I, I don't want you to just be able to pack up and leave and continue growing your Sarball. But, I don't know, it is also a decent trade-off to, uh, to to just not have to lose any of my own ground forces in the fight. So, I think this is a fair point. It's something to have in your back pocket, but there also might be a lot of other reasons why uh you want to get your note out to someone less relevant um hunter sent me some stuff to to be able to include in this and and he wanted to point out that it it's a fair point but it means that sar has to trade it to someone who will likely attack them and you just have to give it to kind of the meanest person or your meanest neighbor um it's just kind of a tricky thing to like make sure that happens i guess it's a cool point and it's a cool idea but I don't know how much it's always going to be utilized. Uh, Darkmancer also brought up, and Robofish um, brought up a similar point, and that is that the Hakan tech can both allow you to force the trade card to be played, but more importantly, it allows you to snatch up Warfare and Imperial in the final round to grab a win or stop someone else from doing it. Robofish drove home the point of you can take Imperial every turn if you want to as the Hakan. Uh, This means victory points and the game. You can always guarantee trade is in the game because you can take trade and then give it to somebody else. They're talking about this tech that lets you swap your strategy cards, and both Hunter and I kind of talked about it as though it was like, that's cool and it's good, but you know, maybe not as important as the other one. And I agree that uh, this is kind of a, by some rights, a a must-get tech for the late game. I think when we were talking about a lot of these techs in these races, we tend to think about just like the overarching idea and the long-term strategies, and we don't tend to hone in too much on the like, what's that one thing that's just going to win you the game? Um, I think Hunter and I as players don't just don't think that way. Uh, but this is an incredibly good point, and it's something that Hakan can incorporate into their main strategy. Just the idea that like Hakan should go hard on Mechatol Rex and then start taking Imperial every turn because you're the only race who's going to guarantee you're going to be able to get him 
imperial. Um, and yeah, it's just it's just a, it is a good point, and it is something that Hakan should should certainly think about doing. Um, I think when we considered this tech, we were just thinking more long term strategies, and not so much the like. Okay, but what do you do in like? What's your last move? And this, that's what this tech is. This tech is like, okay, you've set up everything else. Get this tech and and finish it out strong. Um, there was a lot of talk about different promissory notes in addition to the SAR note. Uh, so let's go over some of those. Jimmy Joe from Board Game Geek said, In the games of TI4 we have played, the racial promissory notes are often used as leverage point to seal alliances. They are rarely executed. And Hunter and I barely touched on this in the episode, just the idea that I think we we liked the idea of using promissory notes more as getting some sort of value out of them, getting some sort of um, economic value. But I mean, obviously, it's true. Their kind of intended purpose is the similar goal of the old trade contracts, which is like, hey, let's give each other our promissory notes, and you know that kind of forces us to not be able to attack each other because it's going to give too much power to the other player. Um, but Hunter kind of said he wished that these promissory notes packed a harder punch. A lot of them are not especially strong, um, but it seems like when they do get used, it'll generally be very dramatic. I, I don't know. I don't know how I stand on this. I, I agree that like the intended purpose for these is to seal alliances, um, but I just feel like as part of my alliances, I'm not going to want to give my ally such a powerful ability to use against me um, because... Even though we're, if we're both exchanging strong promissory notes, I just don't want to give them that kind of leg up because in Twilight Imperium, I always assume my allies are going to betray me because if you've ever played with me, I always betray alliances. I mean, I just don't, there's no value in actually like sustaining an alliance. Only one player is going to win the game. So in terms of like just handing over a strong power to someone who I know will eventually be a threat, I, I don't know. I, I think I see these... For myself more is I need to get something out of them that is monetary or or a huge favor um, just scoring a cool alliance I don't know if it cuts it our biggest goof this episode was um, multiple people pointed this out Jimbo V is one of them Eldfinner from Reddit Twilight Imperium is one of them um, and that's that we, we completely got it wrong about promissory notes in the play area this is actually a rule that I'm pretty sure I was like subconsciously aware of but when we got talking about promissory notes i got so excited and so jazzed up i stopped thinking about this the right way but once a promissory note hits your play area as like the ones that describe in a way of you need to play it immediately those can't be traded so that includes support the throne uh, the one that gives up victory points that includes a, a lot of promissory notes actually and if anything i see this as kind of a weakness of the mechanic of course we're going to play it out uh, like we said, we're going to be doing vanilla um, Fantasy Flight intended Twilight Imperium when we first get it. But if there's anything I feel like I'm going to end up changing the rules on, it might be this. Um, because th there are a significant amount of these promissory notes that that apply to being played in the play area. And part of their strength is like knowing that it's out there. So I don't know how much I'm going to... I think this is going to be a weird rule to have to play around the fact that once it hits the board, it's it's not going anywhere. Um, something like Stymie with the Arborek, and um, that while it's in your play area, you, you know, they can't build near you. I feel like most people that get it are going to immediately drop it. And so from that point, you know, where does the, the long... You know, where does the really good effect of having it come from? I, I feel like sometimes I might keep it in my hand till I need it because I think it's going to be worth more as a bargaining chip to one of Arborex neighbors than it is to just immediately put it in my play area. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how some of these play out. But yeah, that that's kind of our biggest genuine errata thing we have to fix is is once it once it's on the table, it is it is not tradable. It is not transactionable. Uh, you gotta you gotta spend it before it's gonna be in anybody else's hands. And then our last one is actually not an errata from anybody uh, out there in the forums. It's it's an, an errata from me, and it's something I just thought a lot about after we released the episode, and, and I didn't talk much about. Um, and that's in regards to the Embers of Muwats promissory note giving someone the War Sun tech. And I was trying to come up with more ways of like what is like that is such an incredibly huge power, and we talked about it's the way they can gain their economic advantage if they need it um and i i think 
As we just talked about in our tier list, you know, the, the big problem for Embers and Muad is if they lose that first War Sun, they're in a huge amount of trouble. And I think that is where their promissory note comes in handy and becomes a very important part of their tactics. And that's if they do lose their War Sun, suddenly they're very, very eager to get that promissory note out to someone because they need to replenish that War Sun. So however they can manage to I mean, I don't, I'm not saying someone's going to pay them 10 trade goods to have that promissory note, but maybe I, I might offer it up for that because my biggest thing as an Embers and Muwant player is if I lose my Warson, I got to replace it. And I don't know, as another player at the table, I could see just jumping straight up to the Warson tech worth 10 trade goods that that doesn't seem that insane to me i mean 10 trade goods is a lot to save up on and so maybe it's some sort of value equivalent to, to 10 trade goods wh whatever i'm able to give up in favor of that you know a promissory note and four and four trade goods or or something but i think that is the biggest point that embers and muats uh, promissory note comes in handy is if you lose your war son that thing's gonna leave your hand so fast and that's it guys that's all the errata we had so um, the only thing I wanted to say is just to wrap some things up uh, if you're gonna be in the Minneapolis area uh, actually this coming Friday and Saturday that's October 20th and 21st Hunter is gonna be in Minneapolis at the Comedy Corner Underground at 10 p.m. that's on Friday and Saturday so if you guys want to come out and uh, see him do some stand-up comedy he's at a he's at the 10,000 laugh festival in minneapolis minnesota so that means all you fantasy flight employees that we know are listening to this podcast uh go go check out hunter and guys if you go to the show um please please go up and talk to hunter this is this is genuinely we want to meet you know if, if there's a chance to meet people we want to do that and and so hunter would love to to see anyone who's in that area so please if you're in minneapolis or roseville or any of the surrounding areas this weekend friday and saturday go go hit up the comedy corner underground and, and see him uh it'll it should be a good show with a bunch of good comedians um other than that we are still just trying to get the word more and more out about twilight imperium 4 and about our podcast we want this to grow into a much bigger community than uh, twilight imperium has ever been been i think it's really important to both hunter and i that like more people realize that twilight imperium is is a different kind of board game you always hear about people maybe trashing on twilight imperium because it's just it takes too long to play and all these things and i think most players that get experienced know um if you get good at the game it doesn't actually always take that long you know it is possible to finish a game in like five hours now to some board game players that's still extraordinarily long but the other thing for me is even when the games are long for me twilight imperium is about the day it's about everyone getting up maybe going to breakfast together showing up setting up the game playing for a while going and getting lunch you know it's it's if you drink you drink all day it's a it is a saturday that you all spend together and and what we're trying to do is get more people to learn about that so please share this podcast with people um t tweet at us you can also use I don't know, we got to come up with a hashtag, I guess, at, you know, hashtag Space Cats Peace Turtles. I don't know, give us ideas. But we, we want to get the word out about this podcast and about just kind of growing the community. Um, so it's, you know, we love our forum communities and we love having our back and forth, but we got to go bigger. We got to dream bigger on, on this idea. So um, follow us on uh, Twitter at Space Cats Pod and find us on Facebook. That's at uh, Space Cats Peace Turtles. Um, and then always we you know we always post on Twilight Imperium subreddit. We post on Board Game Geek forums. We post on the Fantasy Fight forums. Um, keep sharing us around to your friends. Even if your friends don't play Twilight Imperium and you're you're wanting to get them into it, you know those introductory episodes might be a good place to start. We're hoping to do more stuff in the future that uh, that gives new players even more reason to like understand the game and listen to it so our next series of kind of saying goodbye to ti3 should have a little bit of introductory material and stuff to prep people for ti4 so so please keep um sharing this podcast and and even if it's not just this podcast just keep telling people about twilight imperium um because i think it's important of course it's never going to be something that's as big as you know magic the gathering but we want to have as many people know about this great game because it just gives us more people to, to play it with. So, so thank you all so much for listening and we will see you next week. 
Thank you for listening to Space Cats Peace Turtles. And thank you to Ben Prunty for the use of his music. You can find more at benpruntymusic.com and benprunty.bandcamp.com. Pax Magnifica. Bellum Gloriosum.